This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Dear Father, we thank you for this beautiful day and we thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for giving us another day of life and another opportunity to sit down and study. We ask in Jesus' name to be present. Amen. Well, uh, let me continue now here with, uh, uh, okay, um, how can I have this? Okay, if somebody, and if somebody can address this. Thank you. Okay, as I pointed out, uh, this is a list of books that uh, uh, I was able to discover. We ended the first session with a list of books expounding the idea of the emerging church. Now, here is a slight shift. When I use the term here, the emerging church, I'm not talking about the emerging church of the after 2000. It is just books that expounded the idea of the emerging church at their own time. Remember, these, these books were published before 1990s. They had no idea what is happening after 2001. Okay? The very first title published 1968, three years only after the conclusion of the Second Vatican Council refers to the church in general and the Catholic Church in particular as the emerging church. This paperback in two volumes lays out a history of the Christian church as evolutionary process. The book reveals three important points. That the idea of the emerging church goes back to the very first interpretation of the purpose, intent, and nature of the Second Vatican Council. The word emerging does not necessarily mean coming out, coming into, onto the scene, becoming, and appearing. It actually means evolving, going through an evolutionary process. The idea of the church going through an evolutionary process like nature and life is directly attributed, uh, directly attributed to the work of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. The church history of the last 2,000 years is presented as an evolutionary process through which all Christian groups, heretically included now, all of them a part of one and the same organism, all of them together are undergoing transformational changes toward a common goal. The Protestant reformers, Luther, Calvin, for example, and the Protestant movements like Anglican Church and the Methodists are part of one and the same process of emerging. For centuries, the Church of Rome, now this is my, my re reaction to what they are saying. For centuries, the Church of Rome, including the Eastern Orthodox Church, treated schismatic, heretical, and rebellious Christian groups 
as excommunicated outsiders whose destiny was in the hell. The Protestant reformers were nothing but outright rebels, and the church, without much compassion, hunted them down and burned them at the stake. The Anglican church came into existence due to Henry VIII's insatiable appetite to divorce his legal wife Catherine and Mary Anne Boleyn, not to take the church and Christianity forward. And for centuries, the church persecuted the Jews as well. Hatred and contempt toward Judaism nurtured by the church fathers ever since the second century for the sole purpose to distance Christianity and thus the masses away from the Torah and Judaism is a historical fact. And no matter how hard the revisionists try to change it, it simply does not fit the new emergent evolutionary history. The new history downright assaults, downright assaults and denigrates the pogroms and the Inquisition of the 15th century. Now, I'm, I'm now interpreting this whole thing. This reinterpretation, recasting, revising, and rewriting the history of the Christian church is the very spirit of the Second Vatican Council. First, it is ecumenical in nature. Second, it is revolutionary in thought and practice. And third, it paves the way for fundamental changes in how Christian across denominational lines should understand Christianity and other religions. What happened at Vatican II is nothing less but an introduction of a new era, a new way of doing Christianity, a new attitude. The next question, how and why this radical turn in the attitude of the Catholic Church toward the Protestants the secular society and the rest of the world came to take place. And there are several factors. Years prior to the council, the number of ecumenical Catholic theologians was increasing. The progressives, Catholic thinkers, including La Nouvelle Theologie, or English translation, New Theology, group that existed in Paris, argued that the church was losing touch with society. And third one is the work and ideas of Teilhard de Chardin. Who is Pierre Teilhard de Chardin? He published the book, the, uh, I'm sorry, he did not. His book, The Phenomenon of Man, is his most influential book. It was completed in 1947, but published in 1955 after his death. Wilkins and Colt, that is, the authors of those two volumes that I showed you at the very beginning, the book published in 1968, Wilkins and Colt say about Teilhard de Chardin, they say, what Augustine meant for medieval Christianity and if you know some church history, Augustine is credited as the most important, most influential theologian who shaped the medieval Christianity, medieval Catholic theology. And what Aquinas meant for scholastic and modern Catholic theology, again, Thomas Aquinas is considered the most after Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, the most influential Catholic thinker. They, Wilkinson Colt argue that is the work of Teilhard de Chardin. 
for our contemporary society. During the 1920s, Tayard was well known in Parisian intellectual circles for his ideas on Christ and evolution. In the post-war France, 1945, Tayard and Jean-Paul Sartre, those of you who know anything about modern intellect, philosophy, modern period, history, you, you should know something about Jean-Paul Sartre. The two of them were the most sought after lecturers in Paris. When Harper and Collins conducted a recent survey of the 100 most influential, important spiritual books of the 20th century, the phenomenon of men was number one. Finally, this is quotation from Kofi Annan, one of the, uh, uh, in his uh, speech to the American Tayard Association in April 2005, he said the following, quote, finally, I am convinced that Pierre Tayard de Chardin is a thinker for the 21st century, end of quote. Some of the renowned theologians and scholars have become Tayardians, and I have their names there. At this point, we need to point out that the Vatican Curia, that is the conservative parties, have at various times prohibited Pierre Teilhard to publish his work. Nevertheless, a number of his lectures have been put in print, mostly on the subject of geology and paleontology. And after his return from China in 1946, where he spent many years, almost 20 years, in both exile and in pursuit research in paleontology, he was prohibited even to teach in the universities of Europe. He ended up moving to the United States and dying in New York City in 1955. Teilhard de Chardin is one of the well-known scientists, paleontologists, and at the same time as a Jesuit, he's also a trained theologian. So he comes from both these backgrounds. Pierre Teilhard never saw his major works in print. Nevertheless, that, that does not mean, that mean others were not aware of his ideas and work. Throughout the 1930s and the 1940s, even while in China, Teilhard continually corresponded with his Jesuit friends and shared with them his unpublished manuscripts. It is they who published his work after his death uh, in East, on, on Easter Sunday, April 10, 1955. A few months later, The Phenomenon Human was published in 1955 and then translated into English as The Phenomenon of Man. You may wonder how is it that a man who died more than seven years earlier and whose ideas on the evolution versus biblical creation and the original sin were found to be against the teachings of the church would be able to influence the spirit and attitude of the council. We need to recognize that even among the ranks of the Catholic leadership, there were various schools of thought and factions prior to the opening and during the proceedings of the council. Historians of the council tell us that serious battles were waged over the wording of most of the documents. Those who elected Angelo, Angelo Giuseppe Rancali, the Pope on October 28, 1958, 
did not expect him to make radical move. He was in age, a month short of 77, and the cardinals most likely chose him because he was liked by many. Three months after his election, on January 25, 1959, John XXIII announced his intent to convene a council. Everyone in Rome was surprised. Why do we need a council? There was no apparent need for a council. His further qualification that the council would not be called, that it would be called Second Vatican Council, clearly began to make the conservatives a bit apprehensive because it meant that he will not pick up on the agenda of the First Vatican Council. Not only why, but clerics were wondering what was the council supposed to do. In his announcement on January 25, 1959, John spoke of two aims. Number one, to promote, quote, the enlightenment, edification, and joy of the entire Christian people. Number two, to extend a renewed cordial invitation to the faithful of the separated communities to participate, not to return with us in the quest for unity and grace for which so many souls long in all parts of the world. Yes. Yeah, brackets are always mine, okay. Uh, but just want to point out to you, it is, you see the, the very careful language. What does it mean to participate? Not necessarily return. So it, when you say, we call you to return, then you are saying we are separate. You, are, you don't want that, so you, you're choosing the words. It's a, it is a change in style. You will see, just listen to what's happening here. Pope John appointed prepar preparatory commissions to prepare the documents for the discussion. Members of the commissions were aided by the experts, parity. 484 such parity had been appointed by either John, because John died with after se within several months, and then successor Paul, both of them appointed 484 of these experts. The preparations for the council were massive like never before in the history of the previous councils. The preparations took two and a half years. Once at the council, hardly any of these documents passed through without revision, and several of them completely revised and outright rewritten. Well, the point here is that the preparations for the council were controlled mostly by the the people in the commission were the conservatives from the Vatican. But once the councils convened and the participant, the members of the council, over 2,000 of them from all over the world, many of them were of the different way of thinking. So they kind of forced rewriting of these documents. Some of them were revised, but some of them virtually uh, written all, completely new documents. So there is that struggle going on there. So John opened the council on October 1162, but did not see its conclusion. He passed away June 1963. He was succeeded by Archbishop of Milan, Giovanni Battista Montini, who took the name Paul. Whereas Roncalli was an outsider, 
Bantini was an insider to the Curia of Rome. Obviously, some hoped that the new pope would abandon the council, and others feared that he would uh, uh, continue it. But Paul VI was to some degree sympathetic to the progressives and the new theology groups, and therefore he had no intention closing the council. From the beginning, it was clear that, the, that, there, that there would be battles over the control of the council, as one document after the other was getting approval through the vote of the council, it was becoming clearer that the conservatives led by the Cardinal Ottaviani were losing the battle. The progressive voices were carrying the day, but not to the extent to claim total victory. Matter of fact, the battle for the council sold for the Catholic Church, of the Catholic, okay, the battle for the Catholic Church, if I may use that phrase, continues even to this day. And all of the popes, since the closing of Vatican II in 1965, Pope Francis today is the best embodiment of the spirit of the council. And so keep an eye and listen. So far, what he has do done, he is carrying out the spirit of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, the previous popes like John Paul I, John Paul II, by choosing that name, John Paul, they were indicating that they will continue the policy of the Second Vatican Council because John 23, Paul VI, and then you have John Paul, they're picking up the legacy of the previous. John Paul II intended to do the same thing, but both of them were careful how they handled the opposing conservative groups. And then we have, after John Paul II, we have Benedict uh, Ratzinger, who takes Benedict. Now, choosing the name Benedict is more to plea, to kind of favor the conservatives. Now we have Francis. It was very, I was watching, very much interested, what name will the new pope take? And when he took the name Francis, it became clear to me that this is going, what's happening. And I'll tell you, share with you later why that name Francis is important as well. As early as August 1960, John XXIII appointed Henry de Lubac, whose ideas were previously condemned by Humani Generis, that's an encyclical issued by Pius XII in 1950. Uh, but John appoints Henry de Lubac to the committee controlled by Ottaviani. Now, Ottaviani is a very conservative, very much opposed to the existence of the council, but Ottaviani is the most important cardinal in Rome. He is controlling the theological commission which is preparing the document for the council. Now, Henry uh, uh, de Lubac made very, some influence at the commission level. However, once the council opened, Henry de Lubac's theological vision, which is very much similar to that of Tayard, because he's Tayardian. He, matter of fact, wrote three books after 1955 to defend Tayard de Chardin's vision. He was uh, 
all of that is reflected in the form as substance of the key document of the council called Lumen Gentium. Um, in his opening speech, John set, quote, set a different tone from the most, now I'm quoting uh, Justo Gonzalez, a church historian. John set a different tone from most of the preparatory documents, for he indicated that it was time for the church to respond to the concerns of the modern world with words of understanding and encouragement rather than with blistering condemnation. Three concepts defined the council. Uh, aggiornamento, which means updating, modernizing. Ressourcement, which is in French means going back to the original sources. Development of doctrine. This is the idea that was borrowed from John Henry Newman, a theologian of the 19th century, who uh, talked about it. But it means about unfolding, equivalent to a progress of evolution. So these three ideas are dominating the council. The word and concept of charism enters the vocabulary of a church council for the first time in history. Charism means any good gift that flows from God's love or from the spirit and any of these spiritual graces. The council eschewed the dialectics language. Dialectics is the art of proving a point a winning, or winning an argument, or proving the opponent wrong. Dialectics appeal to the mind, not to the heart. It is abstract and often comes across impersonal. The council rather opted toward the panegyric and the epideictic genre. The panegyric aims to excite admiration and appropriation. It was used by the church fathers, revived during the Renaissance, and again, it was picked up by the new theolo theology teach theologians. The panegyric epideactic method teaches not by magisterial pronouncements, but by suggestion, insinuation, example. The best example is Lincoln's Gra Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural, where he held high what was at stake of the war, and then he praised uh, praised it as noble and worthy, and then he simply called people to move on. We may wonder whether the change in language makes much difference, but the implications are profound, and the Vatican II is a perfect example. Vatican II issued no doctrinal definitions, even though many expected it to do so. Every single council before Vatican II issued doctrinal def uh, definitions. This one did not. It only changed the language. Words of alienation, exclusion, threat, intimidation, surveillance, punishment, hierarchy, prerogatives, all of that is absent. In the documents, the church is never described as monarchy or the members of the church as subjects. The words that are present, people of God, brothers and sisters, the priesthood of all believers, collegiality, the words of reciprocity, cooperation, partnership, collaboration, dialogue, conversation, the words of humility, servant. The church is called the servant of the world. The word change is rare in the documents, but the words development, progress, and evolution 
they, they don't, there's there, but not too many, but there are other words. Vatican II was about the inward journey, call to holiness at the heart of the council. You, you can have more of this material in the book titled What Happened at Vatican II, written by John O'Malley. He is considered one of the few authorities on the Second Vatican Council, a Jesuit himself and a Catholic himself. Tayar disagreed now. Let me go into Tayar a little bit and tell you something about him. Tayar disagreed with Darwin's claim that it is the principle of natural selection which drives the evolutionary process. Tayard argues that it is the principle of emergence as a driving force behind the evolutionary process. The battle between the facts of science and the revelation of scriptures ended in 19th century with the work of Tayard de Chardin. This is what they say. Evolutionary process went through development, predictable, move forward. This is according to Tayard. And breakthroughs, this is unpredictable, moves caused by factor X, by something steps in. Intelligible in terms and of its potential to develop. That factor X is something like divine force. Tayard argues that the entire cosmos, as it goes through this evolutionary process, approximately 15 billion years ago started, Big Bang. It goes through four different phases. Now, these phases are not sequential. That means one ends, the other one begins. No, they are kind of, uh, uh, kind of follow each other. That means one... Cosmogenesis began, and it continues to this day. Biogenesis, two billion years ago, continued. Life comes somehow into existence and continues. Neogenesis, that means consciousness comes into the universe. This is where this breakthrough steps into the process. And then Christogenesis. Now, this is his diagram in his book, and you can see how it goes from the bottom it kind of move into diversity. It is, uh, is uh, separating and diver diverge, uh, di into divergence. And then at one point, it begins to converge and then moves toward. And at the very top, if you can see, there is the omega letter. That's, he calls that omega point. And this converging process is the process uh, of Christ is doing that. Okay? Now, uh, at this point, I will entertain some of your questions and uh, tell me uh, what is, uh, what do you want to know more about it, and I will try to explain as much as you can. Now, if you, uh, I will, next one, I will go into the worldview. That's the next session where I will explain to you what is this whole change and how does this mean. But so far, the point is that the Second Vatican Council, when it took place, first of all, it was just the very fact that it was called for. It was a surprise. The question is, why did Pope John 23 call the council? 
if you go into, into the history of who he is, it comes out that he was, as, um, as a cardinal, as an emissary of the church, he served on a number of places in Istanbul. He spent a number of years before he, when he was elected the pope, he was in Paris for a number of years. Most likely he was familiar, eventually fr became friendly with the circle of new theology and very sympathetic. As I pointed out, he's the outsider of the Curia. He comes from a, a poor family, a very humble, very much a liked person, often was willing to make jokes at his own expense. Uh, it is one of those individuals who was uh, kind of venturing in the new, er new areas. And so when he was elected pope, he, after three months of election, he decides he wants to, and I'm sure that there is a conviction, there is something behind it, he decides to call a council, which becomes really a big surprise for all, especially conservative forces. And so when, um, when the council, and then he appoints people and they are preparing the documents, which is again a novelty. And it took some time and they put it all together. And then when the council took place, it took a life of its own. And under the influence, of all these members of the people who come from all over the world and then these experts and all that. And when it ended, it was uh, a revolutionary turn toward something different. So from that point on, the church is presenting itself in a completely different light. And let me just give you one short story Yes, I will come to it, just, uh, but I, I'll give you one short story. When I attended a meeting in Dallas, there was a convention four days long, and Brian McLaren was there, one of the speakers, but uh, Richard Rohr, spelled R-O-H-R, some of you are familiar with him. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan priest, and he runs a center for um, contemplation in, um, I just can't recall exact title, I apologize, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he was main speaker at that particular uh, uh, meeting down in Dallas. This was in November or October 2009. And in one of his lectures, uh, he made a number of statements. This was one of the last lectures on Sunday morning. And uh, he made some very interesting comments. And one of the comments that he made about the Second Vatican Council. Now, keep in mind, he's talking to about 500 people in audience. And all of these people are some kind of leaders. These are school teachers, uh, prayers group leaders. These are people who came to this convention to learn about the emerging church and emerging emergence Christianity, to learn about uh, spiritual disciplines and all that, how to, to teach others. Okay, so I went to that meeting because I found out about it and I said, well, I want, I want to go there and see what are these people teaching and doing and to learn about them. And so he made the following com comment. Now, he's talking to most of these people in the audience are Protestants. So he makes the following statement. He said, 
at the Second Vatican Council, and I'm paraphrasing his words, at the Second Vatican Council, we Catholics realized that for 400 years since the Council of Trent, we were shooting arrows with you Protestants. At each, we're shooting arrows at each other. He says, at the, sec at the Council of Trent, we Catholics, we Catholics fell into the Protestant trap. The Protestants challenged the church with doctrines and with behavior, and we decided to respond to it with arguments and doctrines. And those of you who know history, of church history and the history of the Council of Trent, at the Council of Trent, the church responded to Protestant challenges, the challenges of Martin Luther, Calvin, and the others. And the church came up with reaffirmation of its doctrines and, therefore, and then the introduction of some, uh, reforming some of the practices and also with introduction of some new Christian piety and so on. And from the point of the Council of Trent, and matter of fact, it is just prior to the Council of Trent that the Society of Jesus, we know them as Jesuits, were organized. Now, Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, uh, if I don't know how much you know about them, uh, the Jesuits are the cream of intellectual elite of the Catholic Church. These are specially chosen young men who have to, who are well-trained, not only in theology, but in other, in sciences as well, in philosophy and so on. And their objective was to develop teachings and doctrines and prove the Protestants wrong based on the scripture and, and how should I say, with academic tools, academic knowledge, all right? And he said, uh, Richard Rhodes said, we fell into that Protestant trap. You were shooting arrows at us. You are telling us that we are doctrinally wrong. And we were doing the same thing to you for 400 years. We even had churches across the street, and we would not put our foot into the church of the other. We finally realized by the 1960s, that we are losing the touch with society and we that we will not anymore do it or relate to the Protestants, we will not do it the Dominican way. Now, if you know anything about Dominicans and Franciscans, it is the following. The Dominican order is the order which emphasized education and academics. Franciscan order, Franciscans are the ones who emphasize prayer and meditation. That doesn't mean that Dominicans do not practice prayer, contemplation, and meditation. And it does not mean that Franciscans do not get educated. But it's the emphasis, okay? Richard Rose is a Franciscan, but he's highly educated. Okay? 
And Ignatius Loyola, the founder of Jesuit Society of Jesus, is a Dominican. But he is also a mystic. So he goes, so, okay. But the point is, he said, we decided we'll not do it anymore Dominican way, we'll do it Franciscan way. Which means we will pray with you. And we invite you to participate. Franciscan way. And you will not find since then Council did not come up with any new doctrines, did not address doctrines, did not change doctrines. It was attitude and the language. And yet, it is considered the most important event for Christianity of the 20th century. And more and more authors now, as there, now, there are more and more books coming out now. Now the battle is being waged. It is after the 1965 that the battle for the meaning of the Second Vatican Council is being waged. And it's going on. And now that's why, don't be surprised when uh, um, uh, Kofi Annan made that statement. I am convinced that Tayyar de Chardin is and, this, and others are saying that the Second Vatican Council, the meaning of the council is for the 21st century. So th th this is, that's what's going on. So I find it way interesting. So when I knew, when I heard that new pope chose Francis, oh, it is, it, it is chosen on purpose. It was not accidental. All right, now I entertain your questions. Yes, please. All right, uh, please speak now, please, uh, because they, they tape, speak loud, please. Okay. You may even stand up and speak loud. With all the information you have just given us, my question is, how is this, all the information and data, relevant to the existence and the contribution of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? And what it means to all the young people, all of us, all the ones and young people? And additionally to that, about five years ago, our, our president of the conference brought to us the idea of the emergent church, but it still left us befuddled. So we never quite understood, never got any, any real practical meaning of what it meant and where was he taking us? And what are we supposed to do with all this, with all this maybe absent information, for want of a better word? So it, it leaves me just somehow confused about this, this emergent church. Are we trying to change the Adventist church? What are we trying to do with the Seventh-day Adventist church, with this emergent new philosophy? Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, it's a heavy question. Uh, you are you are trying to uh, you are a little bit going ahead because in the Sabbath I will talk about what do we do about with all of this. But I can also share with you some yes along the way. Uh, what do we do? Okay, first of all, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to educate you about the emerging church based on my research. Um, what I'm finding out so far, I, I am very reluctant to talk about uh, our church leaders. I don't, I don't like to go into criticism, okay? But sometimes if I say something, don't take it that I'm criticizing, but I have to tell you something. 
that while I was sitting in these meetings, the emergents, if I go there and I listen to them to see who they are and observing and taking notes, I sat there. Now, keep in mind, I'm professionally a historian. That's how I make my living. Yes, I do have training on the undergraduate level. I took some courses in the seminary later. And I sat at the feet of some of the professors at the campus during the Sabbath school, talk with them. Some of them are my colleagues. But see, I'm not part of the seminary. I'm not a theologian. I'm a historian. And, but I got involved. So I'm sitting at those meetings, and I'm wondering, where are my Adventist theologians? They were not there. Um, I can share with you that it was happening back in 2007, 2008. My colleagues would ask me what, in those days, they would ask me, or, because we do academics, we talk among each other and we say, okay, what do you do with your later research and so on. So I would tell them, you know, well, I'm researching in, uh, on the emerging church reading and so on. And they would say, what's that? And I was, that's a, an unpleasant experience that I know that in other words what I'm trying to tell you is I'm not surprised that you said your pastor introduced it and left us confused I don't think we Seventh-day Adventists as a whole paid attention to this development we are somehow late and I don't know anyone you correct me if I'm mistaken I'm not trying to boast here I don't want to I don't, I don't know any other Adventist who has done what I'm doing. I'm not aware of that. There are some articles published. I'm aware of Article Adventist Review by Finlay. I'm aware of uh, 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 well-known, uh, our uh, retired professor, uh, Canale. From, he wrote four articles in Ad, uh, ATS Journal. I read all of them. Um, Duncor under the name of BRI, published a 48-page booklet on Emerging Church. I read all of that material. And uh, it's good, but to me, disappointing. Because it doesn't really go far enough. It stays with the Emerging Church. But you have to go beyond that. Emerging Church is a byproduct of something that has been going on already for decades. And that is where I'm venturing. That's where I'm gone. Because I asked these questions, as you could see earlier. I said, wait a minute. Where in the world does this idea of emerging church come from? And if Tony Jones tells me that some people already labeled these guys before they even chose the name, that something is going on here. That idea existed. And I found, went back and I found out that immediately after the council, Within few years, people are talking about, and of course, these are all these so-called progressives. These are these people who are seeing. They call the Catholic Church the emerging church. And now in their writings, you can see they are dreaming. It's like a vision of what is the future of the church. And the first book that Brian McLaren wrote, the first book, Brian McLaren is the person considered like um, the most 
influential emergent uh, writer. Phyllis Tickle, who just recently published a book titled Emergence Christianity, Phyllis Tickle calls him, calls McLaren, Moses of our times. That means a man who is going to lead us out of the darkness and, and slavery of G Egypt, referring to traditional Christianity. And emergence, write, emergence writers, I mean, Brian McLaren, he uh, openly says, we want to destroy, he's using the, dec they use the different word, I'm sorry. We, we will deconstruct, we want to take apart traditional Christianity, and we want to introduce new Christianity. When I read that, I say, okay, what are you guys talking about? What do you mean traditional Christianity? Well, as I read, I figure out what, what they are focusing on is traditional Protestantism. That's what they are trying. They, are, they want to get rid of it. And uh, so when, um, uh, what is the thought now here? Uh, yeah, so uh, in his first book that he wrote, in 19, I believe, published 1998, 1999. He, he, uh, it's called, the first title was Reinventing the Church, I believe something like that. Within a year, he changed the title and republished the same book. Now, new title is The Church on the Other Side. You read that book. It is The Church on the Other Side. What is the other side? What is he talking about? And it is very interesting when you read that book, what he's doing is he has a vision of what the church on the other side would look like. Now, it's interesting that in that book he's saying the church on the other side will not be much different in terms of whether there will be doctrinals, issues or you know, different teachings and problems uh, in practice and so on will not be much different from what is going on today, but it will be different. It's the other church. What he's trying to tell you, because these people believe that the church here, the emergent, the Catholic church, Christianity, the whole, this is the kingdom of God. So when they talk about the making of the kingdom, that's why they are heavily, very much for social activism. I'm not against social activism, helping the poor, doing everything to improve life in this society. But when they talk about social activism, they are, they are saying we Christians are responsible for the making of the building the kingdom of God. They are talking about the kingdom of God here, now, on this earth. You talk about the second coming. Brian McLaren believes that's a nonsense. and It's a story. He, he ridicules the whole idea of the historical second coming. Like, I hope you believe, like I believe, that the second coming will be an actual 
historical event like you and I believe that tomorrow morning at 8.45 we'll meet in this room tomorrow again, okay? <laughs> you follow me? It's historical, real. He will be really coming, okay? Like he ascended in a historical terms, he really ascended, and then he will come. <laughs> you know, for Brian McLaren, that's what are you talking about? So this is, now, what, if you would ask them, what does it, the second coming mean? Well, the second coming means when come, Christ comes in your life. That's second coming, okay? So you have a completely different perception of what is going on. But they use this same language. So him, for him, the church on the other side is that emerging church. Now, the names can change. You have a lot of people who use all kinds of names. Uh, the Church of Perfect Storm, the um, I don't know, Open Church, uh, Intellectual Church, the Compassionate Church. The, but the titles may be less important. What are the ideas behind it is something that you need to, to know. Does that answer your question? We need to educate ourselves. We need to keep learning about this. And this is a huge, I mean, because we are talking on the level, next lecture will be on the worldview, you'll see. It affects every realm of your and my being. And that's so comprehensive. And I am, okay, I have come up, I'm coming up with certain work I need people who will pick up and begin to go into details. And I need a whole team of people who will work on this and carry this project even further. I cannot do it all on my own. And so some of the people in the seminary are recognized that new seminary dean, Yuji Mascala, is thinking in these terms. We have to undertake serious studies about this subject. This is a new phenomenon. Just let me add just one thing here to understand what I'm talking about here. If I were to ask you, is there a medieval world, such a thing as a medieval world, what would you say? You would agree that there was a medieval world or medieval worldview. You, you would agree with that. Now, if I were to ask you, was there such a thing as a modern worldview that it's different than medieval worldview? Would you agree with that? Well, of course, because um, we often refer to something that they don't like. Oh, that's medieval. See, we we recognize that there is medieval worldview and modern worldview. Now, what happened? that we have a shift. What happened? Did it happen overnight? Well, 1555 came in the morning, January 1, 1955. No, 1555. And everybody in Europe, okay, now we believe in the modern world. No, no, it doesn't work that way. It took number of generations to make a shift from medieval worldview to modern worldview. So we talk there about these, uh, we talk about all kinds of ideas. My friends, what is happening today is 
the making of a new worldview. We are departing from modern worldview. How, what is happening in the future? I don't know, I'm not a prophet. But I can clearly see, as I'm studying what is happening, I can see, now you are asking me what we Adventists do, so I'm sharing with you a little bit. I can see the stage is being set. Once I was sharing my ideas with Dwight Nelson, our pastor. At one point he asked me, he said, because this all that I'm sharing with you, it may sound conspiratorial, and nobody likes to go into conspiracy theories. And I have an answer to it, okay? Yes, I understand people who like to go in conspiracy theories and they see conspiracy everywhere. I understand that. I am not there. I don't do that. But I am doing something. Every organization, whether it is religious, business, political, any organization, every organization has objectives and plans. And sometimes they go open with their mission statements, with their objectives, and sometimes they don't. And all I'm trying to do is figure out what some of these organizations have as their objective. All I want to know is what do they want to do. And I'm seeing now the stage is being set, and Dwight asked me, Are you, do you see someone who is the main conspirator behind all this? And I said, well, I cannot pinpoint any human being, but I can tell you there is one, and it's Satan. The stage is being set, and you will see now as I give you about next presentation, the stage is being set, and one of these days, Satan and his angels will be manifested. And people will believe this is real Christ. Richard Rohr also make a statement. He said, his, his, this is his prediction. He says, science, so far scientists have kept separate from the realm which is beyond external reality. Scientists don't want to deal with the realm of the spirits. They deny it. They, just, they don't argue God is not there. Just say, we don't want to deal with it because they cannot. But he says there are more and more sciences today. And he believes that in his estimate, 15% of scientists, and there are some works done on that area that there are more and more scientists who are beginning to do scientific research in the realm of beyond the external world. And now, and he predicts by 2020, 2025, that percentage of scientists will increase. Now, my friends, let me just ask this and we stop here because the time is up. One day, 
when science and spiritism or mysticism links and when scientists demonstrate that what is happening is scientifically true, tell me how you're going to withstand. And when you say, well, this is what the Word of God said, they will look at you and say, what's wrong with you? We are primitive. This is, look, this is what science says. And those Satan, the stage is being set there. It's there. It's, I can see it. It's happening. So some, some people may say to me, well, you know, you are going too far. Well, as a historian, yes, I'm probably going too far. But I carry this other hat, hat in my head that is a theologian and also a believer. All right. So... I think this is the time, this is the end, come back, I don't know what is it, 2 o'clock, 2.30, whatever, uh, find there in the schedule. And then the next one is uh, on worldview, and then after that on spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines, mysticism, and how all of that works. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.